Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. This is episode number 25, an introduction to the PA Deer Forest Study. In today's episode, I talk with Dwayne Diefenbach of Penn State and Janine Flegel of the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Dwayne is a certified wildlife biologist, adjunct professor of wildlife ecology at Penn State, and the leader of the PA Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Unit. You may remember Janine from episodes number 14 and 15, Meet a Biologist. If not, pause this episode and take a listen to learn more about her career path. Our main topic for today is the PA Deer Forest Study. This study brings together researchers from Penn State, the U.S. Geological Survey, the Pennsylvania Game Commission, and the Pennsylvania DCNR Bureau of Forestry to look at the impact of deer on Pennsylvania forests at a landscape level. Dwayne and Janine, uh, whoever wants to take this one, I guess uh, maybe Dwayne, this might be the best one for you. Uh, can you just give a, a sort of brief ex- explanation of the Deer Forest Study, what that is? Sure. The Deer Forest Study is, <clears throat> excuse me, I've, I'm still recovering from a cold. Um, the Deer Forest Study is a project designed to look at several factors that influence our forest conditions, understory vegetation conditions, and there are many different factors that influence our forests. So we had to narrow it down, but we decided to look at the effects of deer browsing on vegetation, also the effects of um, soil conditions and how that influences uh, forest vegetation, and then finally, what we call competing vegetation, which is species of plants that interfere with other plants and how that might influence um, the understory. And by understory vegetation, I mean uh, plants, both woody plants and herbaceous plants that are um, in the understory of our forests. So... uh Probably what gets uh, the most sort of, I try to think how I want to put this, I guess what, what gets the, the most press uh, seems to be the fact that you have uh, GPS collared the deer. Why is it important to put GPS collars on the deer uh, in regards to uh, how they interact with the landscape? Well, the main reason we do it is to help us get better uh, estimates of abundance of white-tailed deer. And because really we're looking at influence of numbers of deer on, um, on the forest, and we're actually using hunting to uh, manipulate the deer numbers and look at the response of the vegetation. Um, the technology these days um, is a lot better, and so we get a lot of additional information because of the GPS satellite collars that we use, and that's what we've been sharing with hunters. 
but really that's just a side benefit um, that comes about related to the, you know, the real objectives of the research. Yeah, because, well, one thing is studying forest vegetation is, is not that sexy. I mean, let's just, let's just face it. And, but everybody, well, most people find deer movements just absolutely fascinating because you just can't peg them. And, of course, if you set anybody in the woods against a deer, a deer is always going to win. And I think that's kind of the fun part of what we see in the deer forest study. Like Dwayne said, it's not the main objective, but it definitely gets at least people interested and then maybe to see what else the project is doing and, and what we're learning from it. Let's stick with the GPS callers here just for a little bit longer. Janine, uh, <clears throat> I was fortunate enough to, to come, fortunate enough to come out and volunteer my time with the capturing of the deer. Unfortunately, there were no deer uh, that were captured <laughs> that day. Um, but could you just explain real quick for the listeners, you know, the how that process works in general? Uh, how deer capture works in general? Yes. yes. Well, uh, well, every. Every field season for deer capture runs from, you know, January until until we can't catch anymore, which is usually spring green up. Uh, it can go into March to the end of March, depending on what kind of weather we have and how successful the crews are. But uh, we recruit uh, some young, able-bodied uh, students or former students, usually, uh, that have aspirations to go into wildlife and train them to capture our deer, which the two methods uh, that we use for this study are clover traps and rocket nests. And rocket nests are exactly what they sound like. It's a net attached to little rockets. Um, and we do use bait to bring deer into uh, the location in a safe manner. Um, to have and shoot rockets that carry the net over the deer, which capture the deer. Clover traps are not, don't have anything to do with clover. It was the man who uh, came up with the design. And it's just uh, a little kind of a box trap. It's a metal frame with netting around it. And the deer will walk in and hit a trip wire. And then the door will slide behind them to keep them in place until our crews can get to them. And then it's at that point that, that you'll put a GPS caller on them if it meets the criteria for the study and um, then let them loose after that, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, they all get ear tags, and so they all leave with earrings, and some are lucky enough to get a GPS caller depending on, you know, who – what kind of deer we're looking for in that area. We have, um, like you said, certain criteria. You know, is it a, a buck or a doe or how many do we have left in the area, uh, you know, for age sex? How many more do we need in that area? Um, depends or dictates whether a deer will get a call or, or not. So one of the, the things about this study that, personally, not, not being part of the scientific community part that, that I really enjoy is that uh, a lot of the information and, and 
that you got that you two have collected uh, has been shared through your blog and and through a related Twitter account. What what was the importance for sharing those findings with people outside of that scientific community? Well, I, Dwayne, I think the blog was your idea originally, wasn't it? Way back yeah. when? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we just thought it was a great opportunity to get the general public and, and deer hunters engaged and um, and share the findings. Um, you know, 20 years ago, we started out with a fawn study and really the only way we could share findings would be to talk to outdoor writers. Um, we could, you know, write articles for game news. So we could try and get get information into magazines and and newspapers. And that takes a lot of work and you you know, you have to depend on other people to write those articles with you know, and then when the Deer Forest study started in twenty thirteen, there are a lot more opportunities for us to readily share that information and kind of give uh, in a sense, I you know you can think of them as progress reports of what's happening and how we do it. Um, that's a lot more interesting than you know a scientific paper. Well, to to most people anyway. So you know that was the impetus for doing it. Yeah, and I I think it was it's pretty awesome. Um, you know, social media now makes everything a lot more accessible. Everybody or most people have a smartphone or a computer that they have access to that can look at this information. And I think part of it is for us is that we can do it in almost real time, which a lot of those other outlets you can't. So if I think of something or Dwayne thinks of something, we're like, oh, hey, we can write you know, a little post up about this, you know, most of them are not that long. They're, they're made for, you know, easy consumption. Uh, so you don't have to invest too much time, but you know, there it's, it's partly entertainment, partly um, education and on all those things. And we, I would, we have a, a good following and, I would always like to see that grow because it's a it's a lot of fun to be able to do it that way. Yeah, the the timing of a lot of the articles is something that really hits home for me. Just recently, one of the last ones you uh, put out, and I think Dwayne might have written this one, uh, was about uh, the does being sort of the forgotten participants of the rut, and uh, with the with the rut really starting to take shape now for hunting season. That's something that just, you know, an added little reminder to hunters out there that, uh, you know, you can't at this time of year, it's a good idea to also think about where the doe are going to be because the bucks are going to be following the does at that point. Yeah, that's a big pet peeve of mine. You know, everybody loves those boys with antlers on their head and, and does always get forgotten. Um, but for sure, we've written a lot of 
uh, articles, especially this time of year, because for you know natural history speaking, deer have a this is this is a very uh, important time of year for deer with regard to the breeding season. So we we usually write a lot about that in the fall. You know, years past we've written about lots of aspects of the rut, you know, how it relates to weather and the moon and temperature and all those things that people think affect or could affect the rut. But it it, it boils down to daylight and, and does and estrus is really what drives the whole train. So the biggest part that a lot of people see is that are those GPS collars that we've been talking about. Um, once the collars are on the deer, uh, how are the locations collected and um, what specifically are you looking for for the movement of deer or the loco- location of deer? Uh, well, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of complicated because there's lots of trade-offs, but... Um, you know the the locations the the collars are basically like a GPS unit hanging around the neck of a deer, um, with the added feature that the locations that that GPS unit collects are transmitted to a satellite and then uh, emailed to us basically, um, and then the complicated part comes in. How often do you collect a location? Uh, because we're limited by how how many batteries we can include with that unit. And so, you know, if we got a location every half hour, we could probably keep those collars on for a year. But we have, you know, some of these deer that we followed for up to three years, so we make some trade-offs, and um, in some most of the year we're collecting maybe three locations a day, and then in the fall um, we get more locations. For a few years we were getting very intensive locations uh, every 20 minutes during the rifle season, just to get an idea of the behavior of these deer. Um, because that's, you know, our most intensive hunting season in terms of number of hunters um, and effort. So, you know, so we've, you know, been making trade-offs in terms of how often we collect locations. And it's all because of, you know, we're limited by battery life and we'd like to maximize the length of these collars. And some of these deer we've followed for three years and we've had to drop the collar because we knew the battery was going to die soon. But how does dropping the collar work? Uh, there's just a, a mechanism that can receive a, a special signal from us that um, has the collar simply detach from the battery unit and it just falls off the deer. That's, that's, that's cool. That's very interesting. Um, so, out of all the out of all the information that, that you've collected and all the locations and things like that, um, Dwayne, what do you what has been the most interesting or maybe the craziest thing that that you've sort of seen? 
Well, you've seen a lot of crazy things. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think some of the – there's a lot of behaviors that, you know, we just can't explain. We can see these movements, but we can't explain why they do it. For example, uh, we had two or three females in the northern study area um, a couple of years in a row go five to ten miles north out of their home range for just a few days in the exact same place and then go back to their home range. Um, we've have we've seen that some females leave the forest um, during the um, to raise their young so they'll leave the forest go into ag lands and spend most of the summer in ag lands and then at the end of summer go back into the forest. Uh, we've seen males, adult males, um, shift their home range back and forth um, between two different areas depending on whether it's the rut or not. Um, yeah, we've, you know, we saw one of the very first things is we saw this deer go completely out of its normal home range and return, and then two years later, um, it actually returned to that spot where it died. So, you know, we have, you know, movement information only tells you so much. It doesn't tell you why or what factors may have influenced that movement. Um, most of the times, you know, sometimes we've we try and correlate that with weather conditions or, you know, time of season or breeding events or that sort of thing. But, um, you know, we've seen a lot of movements that, you know, we just don't have any data to explain why they occur. study is done on state forest land um is but you mentioned that some of the deer move to private and, and and move back have you seen any difference in how deer move on public lands compared to private lands is there a difference or do they still sort of seem to have the same general daily habits well we really, with this current study, we don't have a lot of data on private lands, and it's a little bit different in that that we capture these deer on large tracts of forest. So you know, thousands of there's thousands of acres of just continuous forest, and some of those deer on the edge may move into private lands where there's some ag, but you know, that's still very different than when you think of, um, you know, other parts of Pennsylvania, like think of Armstrong County, where it's mostly private land and it's small woodlots. It's probably equal parts, you know, farmland or hay fields and forests, you know, and small woodlots. So, we don't have a lot of data on those private lands to really say this is how they differ. Um, 
I can say that, you know, over the past 20 years and the research we've done in different parts of the state, that home range sizes of deer varies according to the landscape. So the more fragmented um, habitats, which are usually associated with higher quality habitats in terms of, you know, for what a deer needs, deer have smaller home ranges. So um, let's say in the Cumberland Valley and in southeastern or south-central PA, um, that their home ranges might be on the order of half a square mile for males and a quarter of a square mile for females, whereas the deer in our um, in our study here currently, females generally have a home range of about a square mile, and males um, during the rut they might expand to two to four square miles. So there there's some big differences, but beyond that, I you know, we just haven't done the research to say how they differ in terms of uh, rut movements and things like that. Two to four square miles, that, that's a lot of area. I guess that sort of makes sense from a hunting aspect and observations that my family and, and friends have made of, you know, seeing deer. You know, you see a buck uh, maybe one time, and then you maybe you don't see him again until the next year or, or a buck that, uh, you know, that you've been seeing all year all of a sudden sort of disappears. Um, that That's a whole lot of area for them to traverse. Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, really would be a takeaway from one of the, one of the things we've discovered is, you know, people talk about game cameras and this buck suddenly shows up or they've been watching a buck and then he disappears and you know, with the GPS collars, we know the reason that occurs is a most bucks have a much bigger home range that compared to September, it doubles or quadruples. And then the other thing is we've documented that bucks actually may sh completely shift their home range once the breeding season happens. So, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why it's so difficult to, you know, quote-unquote pattern a buck's movements. Yeah, they seem to outsmart the best of hunters just about every single year. Um, so with hunters, one big thing, they swear the October lull is real. And for any of the listeners that haven't heard this before, uh, hunters believe, a lot of hunters believe that deer activity slows or completely stops around sort of, I guess, mid-October, uh, just before the sort of pre-rut and, and rut. Um, does that happen? Well, you should read the blog post, right? <laughs> I know the answer to that. Uh, can you tell the listeners the answer to that? Yeah, this was something that, you know, to be honest, was kind of new to me, this idea that there was this October lull. And, and when we look at our deer movements um, for the bucks, you can see that from the 1st of October to the end of October, there's just a gradual increase in movement rates. And most of that increase occurs in the last 
seven to ten days of the month because the peak the peak of the or half the females are bred by the middle of November. So in that October period, movements of bucks just steadily increases. And I think this October lull is more of a perception and also has something to do with um, hunter activity. Because if you look at hunter participation and hunter harvest, um, in Pennsylvania, our archery season opens the, you know, like the Saturday closest to October 1 or something like that. And, and hunter activity hunter activity actually shows an October lull in that there's a lot of participation in the first um, weekend and then it declines and then it picks up at the end of October into November because everyone know the rut, knows the rut is going to be going on. So um, the, uh, there's no biological support that deer stop moving in the middle of October um, it, like I said, it's just the opposite, and I think some of the perception is related more to um, hunter activity and hunting participation in archery season. I think, at least from what I've noticed, is it's more of because deer are smart, it's more of either a shift because of hunting pressure uh, all of a sudden, all these people are in the woods and they're trying to find a place where they're not. Or uh, sometimes, you know, we've noticed uh, where we see a little less activity and it's because we have a lot of oak trees on our property. And once the acorns are gone, uh, sometimes the deer don't come back, uh, or at least the bucks don't really seem to come back until that, that rut time frame, uh, trying to find some of that food elsewhere. Yeah, um, and, you know, and it could be tied to... Um just general sightings of deer. Um, you know, we know that female movements are actually declining during that time period. Um, and if there are real patchy um, food sources, then, you know, there's going to probably be fewer deer in some places and, and more in others, and they're not going to have to travel as much to uh to find food so yeah there's there's a lot of things coming together but i i don't think this idea that especially bucks um go into some sort of semi-dormant mode there, that there's any basis in that in terms of the data that we've looked at So I want to be respectful of your time uh, for both of you. And so the last question I have is, is uh, something we like to do on these podcasts, uh, on our episodes, called a call to action. Uh, so we like to end them with any final final thoughts that, that you have that you want to share with the listeners uh, about either the Deer Forest study in this case or just your general research uh, that you have. So, um, Dwayne, what would your call to action be for anyone listening? Well, you know, the motivation, my motivation for the Deer Forest Study is understanding um, factors that influence our forest conditions besides deer. Because Pennsylvania um, 
20 years ago had a lot more deer and the Pennsylvania Game Commission uh, implemented some management changes with the intent of reducing deer densities because there were problems. There were clearly problems with forest regeneration, um, forest plant diversity, um, and and so so the point I want to make is that we can't have healthy deer populations if we don't have healthy forests. And one of the, yeah, so, well, let me try and keep this short. The bottom line is you need a health, like I said, a healthy forest to have a healthy deer herd. And we're seeing things in the forest that are telling us that um, we could support more deer if we had better habitat. And that that's makes, the bottom that makes line. Sense. And, and that's what people need to keep in mind is that this is an ecosystem of which deer are one part of it. And, you know, it's not like a farm field where we can add fertilizers and those sorts of things. For the most part, we have to rely on the environmental conditions and deer can impact those conditions. So um, it's a, it's a balancing act in terms of keeping deer numbers in balance with the available habitat. And in the long run, that's, you know, to the benefit of everyone in society. Uh, Janine, what would your call to action be? Um, I would, I would echo, you know, what Dwayne said, but I don't think that the, the general public knows how unique and special the Deer Forest Project is. Uh, it's a landscape level project, and you know, it's we're we're in our seventh year or heading into our eighth um, year in the study, and and that's because you know trees and grow slow. Um, and we and we need to gather this data over the long term to understand those things uh, that Dwayne was talking about and those interactions. So a lot of places don't, you know, a study of this scale hasn't been um, conducted because the, some places or a lot of places don't have the resources. So we are very lucky in that respect to be able to do that. Um, I would also. Uh, let people know to follow the Deer Forest blog because while you know the forest part of it isn't always the most exciting, uh, it really gives people an insight as to what it takes to have a project of this size, and you know all the pieces and parts. The you know the the deer capture of course is always the most fun uh, and the most stressful, but there are other things that we are learning that it, are going to help. Uh, manage deer and manage forests that that go beyond just that. Yeah, I think those are both great uh, sort of pieces of information there. Uh, Dwayne, Janine, I really want to thank you for coming on and uh, explaining a little bit of the deer forest study. Um, so, again, thank you. Well, Thanks for thank having you. Me. And 
yeah, maybe we can do it another time. Yeah, absolutely. I would like to get a little bit more in-depth with some of the information, but I think this is a good way to introduce people who might not know about it to get them interested in it. That will do it for today's episode. I find this study absolutely fascinating. If you want to learn more about some of the findings of this ongoing research, be sure to check out their blog and Twitter account. I've provided links to both of those in the episode notes. As I mentioned during the intro, if you haven't listened to episodes 14 and 15 with Janine, go ahead and scroll back, take those in. There's some great episodes, and Janine's a fantastic guest. I want to thank both Dwayne and Janine for coming on today. They provide some great information Look forward to another episode with them as we dive a little deeper into the study. Uh, I think the type of information that this study is finding, uh, like I said, it's fascinating and it really is going to be beneficial to the entire state as we find out more and more about how deer impact uh, our forests. Until next week, please leave us a rating and review uh, on iTunes. And uh, of course, always share this podcast with a friend. And as always, stay wild. Mm -hmm.